amongst all the uncertainty we're experiencing right now, it's almost easy to forget that just a few months ago, we were dealing with another crisis. The terrifying scale of Australia's bushfire disaster is beginning to emerge. The rumblings of a bad fire season began as early as August 2019. Soon, the worst predictions became a reality as smoke blanketed cities. Massive bushfires now visible from space, engulfing the size of more than 50 New York cities. At least 17 lives and more than a thousand homes have been lost. Amongst the ash and devastation, some indelible images remained. Embers raining over huddled families on beaches, endless lines of cars evacuating towns, and even a woman draping her shirt over a burning koala and then sprinting from roaring flames. The loss of land and life is almost incomprehensible. I mean, we're still reckoning with the scale of those bushfires, the worst in modern history. But the next fire season is almost upon us. As we're heading for ever longer and more destructive fire events, we also have to ask, can our ecosystem survive? I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and you're listening to Branch Out. What made the last bushfire season so unprecedented, so bad, so intense? Look, there, there are a number of things. First off, if we look at the land that was burnt on, on a typical fire season or an average fire season, we see somewhere in the vicinity of around about 300,000 hectares that is burnt. This year, we saw 5.5 million hectares burnt. That's Inspector Ben Shepherd, the media manager for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. That means he had an incredibly busy summer, responding to tens of thousands of media requests and constantly keeping the community informed about the latest fire dangers. The other thing that we saw um, was uh, fire danger ratings that have never been experienced in, in places, you know, for instance, like Sydney, uh, where we did see it tip into the catastrophic range. And uh, that, that is as bad as it gets. Um, where, where you are seeing temperatures nudging 40 degrees and humidity is basically getting as low as single digits, um, but coupled with some extraordinary strong winds to drive those fire dangers into, into the worst of conditions. And then finally, obviously, was the losses. Um, some 2,400 homes that were lost, thousands more damaged, um, 25 lives lost, but also uh, just the enormity of, of the impact. Um, just about everyone on, on the East Coast was impacted in some kind of way. From the hinterlands of the Gold Coast down through New South Wales, all the way to Kangaroo Island and Tasmania, the country burned. The sheer scale of sun blazes were terrifying. One fire alone, the Gospers Mountain Fire, um, had a perimeter of 1,600 kilometres, one fire. And that was just one of hundreds and hundreds that we had um, each day. We all know the terrible human cost of those fires. For some of us, it's an emotional burden. The memory of those days blanketed in orange smoke. And for others, the price was much higher. There was also a devastating cost to the environment. It is, a, it is a case where people tend to think of that and look at the extent of the fires and say, all of that landscape has burnt. But when you start to break it down, that landscape is hundreds of thousands, millions, 
probably billions of plants that have been burnt. That's Dr Brett Summerall. He's the Director Research and Chief Botanist at the new Australian Institute of Botanical Science, and he's based at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. To help give people an idea of the ecological damage the fires cause, he tried to work out a rough figure for the number of trees that had burnt. We come to that sort of, it could be somewhere between three to seven billion trees. And of course, under every tree, there are literally hundreds of shrubs, of grasses, of mosses, of liverworts, of lichens, of all sorts of other types of organisms. So, you know, three to seven billion trees is, is probably a pretty dodgy estimate, but it gives you a number on which you can start to think about. That's a huge number of organisms that have been impacted by these fires. A possible seven billion trees. I mean, that's basically one for every person on the planet. And Dr. Somerville also frequently heads to the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden, Mount Toma, just outside of Sydney. Now, this garden is surrounded by world heritage bushland. And by the middle of January, about 80% of that bushland had burnt. For Dr. Summerall, returning once the fires had passed was an intense experience. Not that long after the, the fires came, come through, everything does look as though it's been um, destroyed. Um, everything's black and charred and charcoal. It's, the smell is quite intense. Um, and it, if you're looking superficially um, as you're driving through as you, or, or even if you're walking quickly through an area, uh, it does look as though it's just dead. But the first time I went up there, you took the time to stop and look closely. Already you could start to see in different species um, that they'll lose tiny little green shoots with their ring. And so once the immense impact of it, once you get, once you get there, is, is very sobering. But as you start to, to look and to notice and to, to move through the countryside, you start to see these little glimmers of hope. We all know the image. You're driving along the highway, Charred trees match the black tarmac. Then there's a brilliant splash of neon green. New shoots emerging from a burnt tree trunk. Fire brings death, but it also has an intimate relationship with life and regeneration, especially here in Australia. Yeah, so, I mean, it's very true that a lot of the flora that we have now has adapted to a drier continent as, the, as Australia is separated from Gondwana and, and moved started move, moving north towards Asia, the continent dried, and so the intensity of rain became less frequent, and so they had to cope with much more harsher conditions. And so we have a lot of, a lot of plant species that are well adapted to survival um, of, of dry conditions, but also well adapted to surviving fire. Some plants have even developed incredible fire defence mechanisms, known as lignotubers. And it's a swollen base to the plant that, that can survive fires going through. It's protected by the soil. And it's remarkably how little, um, in most cases, the impact of fire is going to have any impact on what happens underground. And so these swollen bases, once the fire has gone through, can push out new growth from the lignotuber under the soil and send up stems and, and the like very quickly. So you see it a lot in banksias. Uh, waratahs are a, a classic example of having a able to have a lignotuber that can produce new shoots with leaves and flowers relatively quickly. It's even been suggested that some plants are made up of highly combustible material to encourage the path of the fire. Certainly it's an, it's an interesting question to ask whether, you know, the, 
the high level of, of volatile compounds that you find in eucalypts or whatever seem to predispose them to burning and burning quickly when that when it goes through. So is that a survival mechanism? Does it allow the fire to move through that country quickly so that it is that they are then able to to be less intensely burned, which could kill the plant, and so it moves fast through the, the ecosystem so that they can then come back uh, quickly. But of course, these plants evolved with very specific environmental conditions. Their dangerous dance with fire was tempered by cooler weather. Likewise, the cultural burning and other fire management practices of Aboriginal people depended on the regularity of seasons, the certainty of impending rain. And we know that regularity and that certainty is disappearing. So globally, temperatures have gone up about just over one degree, about 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels since the sort of uh, industrial revolution. And that's consistent in Australia with uh, globally. That's Professor Leslie Hughes from the Australian Climate Council. But along with those averages, what that really means is that the extremes are getting worse. So we're seeing more extreme temperatures, so we're getting more heat waves. Uh, We're seeing more extreme drought, uh, more extreme heavy rain causing flooding, uh, more extreme cyclones in some parts of the world. Professor Hughes has researched the impact of climate change on species and ecosystems for 30 years. She's also only one of five Australians who contributed to the last two Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports. So when it comes to understanding and communicating the impacts of a heating planet, she knows her stuff. And then, of course, when you get higher temperatures, and especially um, after more extreme rainfall deficit causing droughts, you get events like the catastrophic bushfires that we had last summer. If you thought the drought couldn't get any worse, think again. It just did. Two-thirds of Queensland is now affected and we're bracing for more. Low rainfall is combined with record high temperatures. It was the hottest summer on record last year. Much of the country is right now in drought. In fact, we are in the middle of a super drought. Not only the driest, but the hottest on record. We've been uh, in a drought now for for some time. Um, We're not really quite out of it yet, so we can't actually put a figure on how long that drought's been, but it's been a particularly, I know this sounds odd, but a particularly dry drought. I mean, droughts are always dry, but some are drier and hotter than others. So we've got, we've had soil and vegetation that was extremely dry, you know, virtually no soil moisture in the upper, upper layers and and really stressed and dry vegetation. And, of course, lots of our vegetation in Australia is very fire-prone anyway because it has a lot of oils in it. So you, when that dries out, it, it becomes fuel very, very easily. The land was basically a tinderbox, ready to burst into flame from a single spark, blanketed by the intense heat waves we saw over the summer. And with that boundless fuel, the fires became furnace hot. Even the resilience of fire-adapted plants is basically useless when fires become that destructive. But nature often finds a way. And as we heard from Dr Summerall, some areas are already seeing promising signs of life. But when the fires start to reach areas that are totally unprepared for such a threat, like rainforests, that's when we really start to worry. Yeah, I mean, it's all in the name. I mean, fire, rainforest, it doesn't really match up. No, 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 that's exactly, I mean, that, that is exactly right. 
you know, it's just not a, an ecosystem that involved with the, the frequent presence of fire. So they don't have the thick bark that you see on the eucalypts to protect them from the heat, the intensity of the fire. Uh, they're very thin bark, very easily killed by fires moving through. So it's just they don't have that suite of adaptations that you see in a, in a eucalypt woodland. So you'll see that uh, when a fire goes through, that the mortality in the trees will be much, much greater. You know, they're just not adapted. The recovery time, if those rainforests recover after a fire, is really, really very long period of time. But the fact is, they don't have that time to repair. As we saw last year, fire seasons are starting earlier, burning longer and wreaking more havoc and destruction. This year is no exception. I mean, rainforests are incredibly fragile ecosystems and without that time to recover, they could be facing more damage. So, with the next fire season bearing down and more to come, how are we protecting our most vulnerable environmental treasures? Coming up after the break, preparing for a comeback and a secret science rescue mission. Prehistoric Wallamine Pine has been saved from virtual destruction in the New South Wales bushfire crisis by an elaborate sprinkler system. Known as dinosaur trees, the pines were thought to be extinct until around 200 of them were discovered in a remote gorge in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney 25 years ago. You know, I knew Mount Toma, Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens was sort of the home and deeply involved in the discovery and identification of the Wallamai pine. And I think on my first day, I'd asked my boss, Greg, do you reckon I'll ever get to go there? And he just said, no way. Like they, they keep that secret and access <laughs> so guarded. And, you know, my heart dropped and I was like, oh, well, you know, I understand why. The location of the Wallamai pines is an incredibly well-guarded secret. And it's for their protection. Because should any well-meaning visitors walk in and they've got even a skerrick of foreign pathogens on their shoes it could destroy the Wallamai's fragile environment. But for Ian Allen, an arborist at the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden Mount Toma, his wish to see a Wallamai pine in the wild ended up coming true as the Gospers Mountain fire encroached on the critically endangered species. I think within an hour or two, it went from having no, nothing on the radar about protecting Wallamai pines to all of a sudden um, basically getting ready to jump in a car and, and drive out to a secret location and prepare for that. He and a small team of experts were quickly marshalled and tasked with carrying out a rescue mission to save the trees. There are only a handful of people in the world who have seen the towering 40-metre-tall dinosaur trees in the wild, and Ian became one of them. It really was um, just this bizarre, surreal feeling um, to be helicoptered in over them. I'd never been put on a winch before and lowered in into a forest from above and... You know, the, the, the helicopter pilots are just incredibly skilled. You, you put your life in their hands and they hover, hover this helicopter over this, these narrow gorges and lower you down through gaps in the trees. And, um, yeah, I, I still think about it all the time. The, the sort of hum of it, its rotors disappear into the distance and, yeah, and then you just realise you're in this, this deep gorge um, and there's these dinosaur trees there. You know, they really are. They just don't look like they belong at all. I, I spend a lot of time in the bush and we all 
it's either rainforest or it's the dry eucalypt sclerophyll type stuff and then there's these bizarre coniferous trees that are sticking up and they're sort of upwards of 30 meters plus and they just stick up there and so as you're getting winched down you're looking down on the tops of these trees that look so alien and then next thing you're there in there and you you, you expect a velociraptor or something like that to come come out of the gorge you know it, it really is a, a, a special place though we would have liked to stand there a bit longer and savor the moment Ian and the team were under the pump, quite literally. I mean, they had to set up an irrigation system right there in the canyon. All the while, the intense Gospers Mountain fire was approaching. It was very still on those days and and the light was quite eerie because of all the smoke. So you get that, that kind of, uh, you know, sort of yellowy-orange light on everything. Uh, but we... Yeah, we were, we were just really focused. We knew, we knew we had very little time. That's Baron McKenzie, a plant ecologist at the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment. We were trying to prioritise which trees to protect first in case we got, uh, we got the call to, to leave earlier than expected. And we decided to, to protect the downstream part of the, the site, which is where one of the, the largest and, and oldest known Wollamai pines grows. And when we, we finally switched on that first pump and saw the sprinkler heads start to turn and, and water being cast around the side, it was, yeah, it was really rewarding. I think we all had our doubts, especially after the, the first day in the grove and seeing how little water there was. But, but once it all, all started happening and, 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 you know, it was working, it was, yeah, it was a fantastic feeling. Saving the Wollamai Pines garnered international attention because since their rediscovery in 1994, the world has fallen in love with them. Darren's boss recently asked him for some photos of the mission. Uh, so I ended up sending her a, a screenshot of Leonardo DiCaprio's Facebook page that has, uh, has my photo next to a Wollamai Pine and, um, and all these people thanking Mr DiCaprio for his involvement, which was uh, quite funny. You know, I think it's, it's, it's one uh, lighthearted indication of the, the global appeal of the species. You know, it's, it's made international headlines and, and people who, um, you know, who might not have ever seen a well on my pine are, are interested in, in, in celebrating its, you know, the fact that it survived the fire. Saving the trees was a daring and worthwhile mission, but resources during a bushfire are spread incredibly thin, and not every tree can be protected by a group of highly skilled experts and helicopters. If fires continue to become more frequent, longer lasting and destructive, then our ecosystem will be increasingly threatened. We don't know because of the impacts of climate change what the impact on those species are. Are we going to see more frequent fires, which would be you know, a really bad thing for, for different species, um, if, particularly if they don't have long enough between fires to produce new seed? But it so happens that we have an insurance policy. Located at the Australian Botanic Garden Mount Annan is an incredible facility called the Australian Plant Bank, where over 100 million seeds and other plant material from native species are stored. We have a fantastic facility to, to get lots of these different species into the seed bank at um, ultra low temperatures, get them into the uh, get them under liquid nitrogen at super old ultra temp low temperatures, or using things like you know the traditional botanic gardens growing up 
uh, collections in potted pot plants so that we can store them and, and have them there ready to be used. In fact, seedlings from the Australian Plant Bank have already come in handy after previous five seasons pushed some flora to the edge. There's been a, you know, a few examples already, uh, these fires and previous fires, where um, species that were impacted to the point of close to extinction or near extinction, which have been able to, where we've been able to delve back into the seed bank, um, get the seed out and grow them up so that we can start to, to um, uh, supplement populations after events like this. The science behind seed and plant banking isn't simple. In fact, the cryopreservation method used for some native species is pretty much the same sort of thing you use for storing human and other mammalian embryos. But what makes storage so complicated for plants is that it varies from species to species. And there's a lot of biodiversity here in Australia. Theoretically, there's, there's probably 25,000 different approaches to how you get a plant ready to to uh, store in the seed bank and, and in plant bank. Not yeah. quite too many, but it's probably even, it's substantial. Rainforest species in particular produce these fleshy fruit things designed to go through an animal's eco, uh, intestinal tract, um, and that's all they do. But when you try to, to um, clean them up, dry them down, uh, to be able to put them in the freezer uh, at, at plant bank, they just don't like it, they won't survive. Each, each different way in which you do this will depend on the species and, and how, it's, how it's adapted for these sorts of conditions. Although Plant Bank is arguably the best backup plan we've got against species extinction, it's a melancholy duty to prepare for future destruction and loss of biodiversity. Should another black summer occur before we learn how to adequately store certain species, they could be lost forever. Climate change is just making already severe events even more severe and happen more frequently. So it's not a matter of saying this event was climate change and that event wasn't. Um, it's really climate change is sort of weighting the dice towards more severe events. Now, look, it's easy to despair at the thought of another summer like the last. But if that terrible event showed us the catastrophe of ignoring climate change, it also displayed its solution. Ben Shepherd at the New South Wales Rural Fire Service saw it himself. It was hard and the community this year, I think it, more than ever before, played an, an enormous role in ensuring their properties were prepared and they were adequately prepared. I've never seen a community response like it, um, but it was a massive effort and one that we will learn from, but uh, also that I think many communities will learn from as well. So we've got the scientific knowledge and the community engagement. And Professor Leslie Hughes says there's one more special ingredient. I think for me, I've, I've come to the conclusion that hope is generally thought of as an emotion, um, but I think we also have to think of hope as a strategy because if we don't have hope and optimism for the future, we stop working so hard to shape that future. So for me, having hope and optimism in the face of what can be pretty depressing news a lot of the time is not a not something I can't do. Thanks for listening to Branch Out and a massive thank you to all of the incredibly passionate and knowledgeable guests who featured in today's episode. Next episode, we're looking at the amazing healing power of plants. We'll explore the latest cutting edge research as well as how to grow species in your own backyard that help relieve those cold and flu symptoms. 
I've been studying medicinal plants and fungi for 20 years and uh, none of them in all of that time really can hold a candle to, uh, to cannabis and uh, particularly around its uh, medicinal applications. If you like today's show, please hit subscribe and give Branch Out five stars and a positive review. It helps more people discover the surprising world of plants. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode was produced by Dan Butler.